The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Natasha Leonard. We spoke about whether or not Donald Trump and the movement that has coalesced around him ought to be characterised as fascist. We also talked about the contributions of Wilhelm Reich, Michel Foucault and other figures in the anti-psychiatry movement to theorising fascism. We discussed the legitimacy and history of anti-fascist violence and its treatment by the media. And finally, we spoke about Natasha's writing on suicide and how the act of suicide brings into question capitalism's positing of the idea of the sovereign individual. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, which has a great many left-wing titles that might be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Debt System by Eric Tucson. For as long as there have been rich nations and poor nations, debt has been a powerful force for maintaining the unequal relations between them. Treated as sacrosanct, immutable and eternally binding, it has become the yoke of choice for imperial powers in the post-colonial world to enforce the subservience of the global south. In this groundbreaking book, renowned economist Eric Tucson argues for a radical reversal of this balance of accounts through the repudiation of sovereign debt. Customers in North America can order the book directly from haymarketbooks.org. In the UK and Europe, the book is available through all the usual online outlets. As always, you can listen to PTO on iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud, Blueberry and Spotify. And you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at Poll Theory Other. And if you enjoyed the show, please do consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping the show to reach new listeners. If you would like to, you can also support the show by donating through Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll get access to extended versions of PTO episodes, including today's interview. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Natasha Leonard is a journalist and essayist. She's a columnist for The Intercept and her work has appeared in The Nation, Esquire, The New York Times and The New Inquiry, among other places. She teaches critical journalism at the New School for Social Research in New York. Her first book, Violence, Humans in Dark Times, co-written with Brad Evans, was published by City Lights Books in 2018. And her second book, Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life, which was the subject of our conversation, was published by Verso Books earlier this year. You say in the book that it might be useful to think about the growth of the far right as in some sense an, an accident. You know, as you, as you explain in the book, if one invents a car, then you've also effectively invented the possibility of the car crash. And that in the same sort of vein, fascism has always been uh, imminent to neoliberal capitalism or, or even just capitalism. So could you sort of talk about that conception a little bit? Right. So it's definitely um, n- not one of my own uh, making, although um, I'm using an idea of the accident 
that was um, first coined by the late great urbanist Paul Virilio, largely to talk about accidents of technological progress or what we call progress. Um, so as you mention the example of the the car crash that's one Virilio used the same um you know if you invent an aeroplane you also invent the possibility of an aeroplane crash so with every sort of mark of what gets called progress or what we understand as progress we've also invented a new type of possibility for different sorts of disasters and accidents and those are inherent with an invention and the way I try to shift that over to talk about the current rise of the far right, the current burgeoning forms of fascism that we're seeing is in terms of the accident, as you say, of capitalism and in this moment of neoliberalism, which is to say not a mistake, not some sort of aberration hmm. by which we've taken some U-turn back to the early 20th century um, liberalism de defined as progress, but took a right turn, which is kind of the way a lot of the liberal commentariat responded in outrage, rightful outrage, but outrage and shock to Brexit, to the Trump election, to the successes of the far right in Europe and beyond. So I kind of wanted to play on this idea of what an awful accident, what an awful mistake, and mm. say, well, what if we rethink accident as the way Paul Virilio did, a potentiality carried always in what we might describe or understand as the forward motions of progress. And that seems to apply so well to a liberal narrative. And, um, you know, I wanted to, at the same time, call upon um, the sort of thoughts around fascism and understanding of fascism that has long insisted that it is continuous with modernity and liberal capitalism. Um, so trying to bring those ideas together with the idea of the accident was my plan. Well, yeah, no, I, it's, it's, a, it's a nice way of thinking about it, I think, because it, it allows for fascism to be thought of as, as a moment of exception, but an explicable moment of exception. Right. And it's, um, and, you know, one always has to be careful to not try and be too to causal about these things, like because it was a stage of neoliberalism in crisis, we therefore necessarily fell into uh, increasing moments in collectives and sites of fascism. Um, and that again is why the accident is a useful way of thinking about this because it's not like the possibility of an accident exists um, as a necessity in every single car. Mm. Um, but the potential of accidents per car, car crashes per se inhere in the fact of a car. On the discussion around whether Trump and the movement that, that coalesced around him ought to be conceived of as, you know, as, as fascist or authoritarian or proto-fascist and, and so on. So, I mean, I think in, you know, in 2016, a, a lot of people on the left, I think, were, were very resistant to thinking of Trump as a fascist, partly because by treating him as an exceptional figure in American history, uh, a lot of liberal opponents of Trump seem to want to obscure the extent to which Trump was, you know, as, as, as Corey Robin puts it, a very sort of legible figure in American history um, mm. and who draws upon uh, the kind of racism that has always had a place in the, in the American political mainstream. What was your take on that debate? And why, why do you think it does make sense to use that kind of terminology? 
Um, so I very much understood and agreed with the sort of nervousness to apply fascism um, and against a kind of liberal desire to say, oh, he's, he's an aberration, he's a fascist, um, only insofar as it was quite clear in those moments of liberal pa panic that by fascist they only meant, oh, he acts quite a lot like Mussolini or there's a kind of fascist aesthetic here. So if you're only talking about fascism as that which is constituted in a state regime that pretty much looks exactly like early or mid 20th century fascism and is therefore an aberration from what has come before us in the last 20 years, then I completely agree we should be nervous or resistant to use fascism that way. But if you are using fascism more capaciously and insisting both historically and in the now, it's always been continuous and not a counterpoint to or not a, a aberrational outgrowth of uh, capitalism, then I think it makes much more sense to engage with the ways in which we are seeing something quite specifically fascistic emerging. And when I say historically, um, I think it's always relevant to point out that a lot of the techniques of fascist terror were first developed in colonial projects. So when the very righteous, right, rightful and correct point is made that Trump's behavior is in fact got a stronger history in particularly US colonialism, American colonialism, well, fascism has always had fascist projects, fascist techniques of uh, societal organization and terror have always had their origins in colonial projects. So that to me, I think is always worth pointing out. And in my book, particularly, I, I like, as I kind of hopefully explain, I, I do use fascism really quite capaciously in order to talk about not just regimes or militaristic collectives, but the ways in which, which fascistic practices, fascisting as sort of gerund verb, can permeate or sometimes does permeate everyday life under capitalism, um, those sort of perverted desires for power, domination, hierarchy, otherings. And I didn't sort of pull this out of thin air. Michel Foucault, in the introduction to Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus, coined the term, or at least deployed the term, maybe he didn't coin it, uh, microfascism to talk about exactly these, these everyday fascisms that when nurtured and given space in the collective, be it online or offline, in meat space, can very much form into what are very recognizably fascist formations. And I, I kind of, I find that useful because it gives us a kind of broader terrain from where we can sort of look for those fascist sparks, those fascist desires, both in society at large, but also in ourselves and in, in the, the way we, we all in this society, in under capitalism, so readily bent towards hierarchies, power, oppression, um, our own privileges, um, which is not to say that we're all kind of secret, essentially Nazis waiting to happen, but that to look out for the way in which these sort of constellations get fostered. And also that members of the far left who deploy Antifa tactics have very comfortably, and just members of the far left 
More broadly, we've been comfortable using the word fascist. It's not sometimes some word that disappeared from protest lexicon or leftist lexicon uh, for the last 70 years. You know, before people were chanting, no cops, no KKK, no Trump, no KKK, no fascist USA, after the 2016 election. I mean, I've been at marches for the last decade that are no cops, no KKK, no fascist USA. So I just feel like this idea that maybe it was this kind of weird re-emerging term for liberals who just thought fascism was fully finished at the end of the Second World War. But, you know, it's it's not been a term that's been avoided or, or disappeared. And it's been useful, I think, to deploy for leftist purposes and social justice purposes in, in all the years since then. I wonder if there's, there's something of a... There's some kind of tension between thinking about fascism in, in, as a sort of, uh, you know, a kind, of, a kind of structure of feeling and then thinking about fascism in terms of, of specific institutional design. And I wonder if um, some people who, who you know, um, study and research in this area who were focused more on the question of, of, of institutions might feel that that very capacious use of, of the term can sort of smudge together quite disparate institutional forms, you know, whether we're talking about the uh, American plantation or, 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 or colonialism, um, as, as, as you mentioned, or, or the fascism of the early 20th century or, or, or Trump's America. Um, I, I, which I completely understand, which is why I think um, I'm less interested in the idea that we must like label something in any absolute terms fascist or not in terms of labels. Um, and so if we are going to talk institutionally and the sort of institutions that very much have fascist architectures in their operations, um, we still need to be able to point out what those operations are and what performances of fascism those include. So that takes descriptive effort too. So if you're talking more in terms of desire production and collectivity production, that too takes a broader context of description. And I think it's always these fraught words like fascism that suddenly everyone's incredibly desperate to nail down the concept so we know that we are always precisely using it right, as if we're ever going to use a term without the context of broader discussion, description, and argumentation. Um, you know, concepts almost never work that way, be they simple concepts or complex and politically fraught ones. You always need to be explaining what you mean by them and why you're finding it useful to apply them and interpolate something that way. So I, I just personally find it more useful to have numerous ways to deploy the word, even if in doing so we need to be distinct about whether we are talking about affective production or institutional organisation, and then indeed the way those cross over to crystallise into more broad uh, fascistic regimes and then authoritarian fascistic states. You've mentioned... Um... Deleuze and, and, and Guattari, and, and, and you, you talk about uh, Wilhelm Reich in the, in the book as well. So these, you know, figures associated with the anti-psychiatry movement. And, and you, you, you quote that great line from, from Reich talking about, uh, I forget the exact line, but, you know, we must uh, seek the fascists within ourselves and, and, and the, the institutions that sort of hatch the fascists daily. Um, in the current context, what would you say are the institutions or, or, or sets of relationships that do foster fascistic desire? Um, so I think certainly 
in, well, in America at least, a sort of racism that's long been organised around the treatment of people of colour as a constant threat. So obviously that's not new, but it becomes um, more and more engendered by the day and obviously has a huge history right the way back from slavery through Jim Crow into mass incarceration. But I think that then is so easily weaponized towards building a petrified yet angry, self-victimizing yet self-superiority asserting um, set of, of, of white people. Um, so I think that definitely serves to create the kind of the grounds for a community to organize around the very particular fascistic affect of wanting to dominate and also at the same time feeling constantly victimized. So I think that certainly is the kind of undercurrent available. Then also you have to look at the role of media and the way in which there's been such a kind of ease and availability of far-right rhetoric to proliferate and, you know, abject hate speech to proliferate and algorithmically, virulently spread, you know, YouTube suggestions that move very, very swiftly from, you know, a history video about the Holocaust to Holocaust denial to Atomwaffen. So I think those are, are ways in which isolated individuals find themselves within a community with a shared affect that constantly affirms. Um, obviously, there is a huge responsibility, or just a kind of, oh, no, not a response, the responsibility is on uh, the powers that be that have meant that the left is so so far on the back foot. But I think certainly uh, in Western Europe and in America, where unions, sites of collective, more communized space and security have been absolutely decimated in the past decades, mean that there is no option out... There, there seems to be very few political and, and affirming options outside of the inequalities wrought by neoliberalism available um, to be a kind of strong counteraction to the, the messaging and the potentialities that the far right claim to offer. So yeah, I mean, I think it's a number of things. And then also in a more, on a more institutional level, certainly in the US, um, and actually uh, where I am right now in Germany, that there's been a number of investigations revealing the extent to which this is the case, but um, the police forces are huge sites of fascist organizing, both um, members in uh, white supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups, uh, but also enablers of, and kind of the rhetoric that's been so normalized within police departments, even if no, no individuals are members of Identity Europa or any new Nazi party, they speak as if they are. So I think the kind of the role that anything like policing has come to mean has already been fascist or fascist adjacent, so obviously leads itself quite easily to explicit fascism. And then in terms of the kind of everyday modes that, you know, we could say that the fascist in our own potential heads, competition under capitalism, um, ways in which we feel like we have to um, perform our privileges, uphold them, perform sort of stolid notions of gender in order to be safe or successful. 
Um, these aren't necessarily, you know, immediate door openers to neo-Nazi rallies, um, but they do work on the same sort of hierarchical society, societal organization that finds its most kind of extreme realization in fascism. Um, and certainly we're not in a world that's, that's smashing those and counteracting those by the day. They still perme permeate and proliferate as standard. On that point of neoliberalism as a, as a sort of incubator for, for fascism, I suppose one concern I think some people have, and you see this amongst liberals, and I, you know, I think it has some legitimacy to some extent, is that that kind of way of seeing fascism can almost sound as if one's excusing it. You know, it's almost as if, oh, people have been pushed to the wall and they're responding with, with, with fascism. And um, uh, not that I'm saying that that's your position exactly, but um, do you see what I mean? That, that... I do, but I just sort of feel like that, um, th like by that, by that token, we would be stuck if we're talking about the conditions of possibility for anything based that has some basis in ressentiment and also that I think would really defang our arguments for a more communized society because surely we make those arguments because we want to create the sort of world wherein it is not desirable to oppress it is not desirable to live out hierarchies and you know we need to create those worlds and 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 build them and show and perform perform them and kind of uh, make evident the desirability of them. And I think that the argument for that sort of falls apart if we're not willing to say, oh, certain societal organizations which leave many, many people disaffected, exploited, desperate and angry and alienated actually reproduce more and more violent types of collectives, more and more violent types of sentiments and um, re-inscribe the very hierarchies um, and violences that they first began with. So, I mean, I'm not sure that explaining that something is a kind of historical condition for something necessarily means that you're excusing it. Because, again, not everyone who is sort of subjected to or takes part in microfascisms becomes a neo-Nazi. That takes fostering, that takes collective action, and... To disrupt that takes also collective action, anti-fascist action, communistic action, actions towards social equality um, and justice. So one finds oneself in a sticky position because it seems ridiculous, foolish and incredibly sort of Clintonite liberal to say, oh, kind of long for the halcyon days of 2016 as if there wasn't something causal in the, uh, about the inequalities produced by the neoliberal order. Um, but is that to say, therefore, no fault lies in the white nationalists and organizers? Absolutely not. But would they be able to get such purchase without mass inequality that we've seen and the promise of the end of history only serving so few? Um, probably not. Well, almost certainly not. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose in some ways I'm probably thinking of the straightforwardly analytically wrong position, which views, for instance, the, the Trump base as being uh, overwhelmingly com composed of, of, you know, poor working class people, uh, which is obviously not, you know, not the case. Right. I, yeah. And I think that's that's the thing, too, is it, it's yeah, it presumes that everyone who 
is forwarding and organizing messages of neo-nationalism and organizing movements and pulling them together is exactly this sort of impoverished white working class, rural working class male. Whereas, of course, um, Trump Trump won on a, a white middle class vote. 52% of white women voted for Trump. So, you know, does that not, does it mean that, um, and, you know, same being the case in Brexit, these more well-off white nationalist middle class voters did not weaponize the disaffection of some of the more impoverished in the country, absolutely, like, they did. I mean, this was so much of the Brexit narrative and somewhat of the Trump narrative, too. Um, but pointing out the failures and the crisis of neoliberalism does not, therefore, reduce the fact that we've long had a ready-to-go and already active, seething white nationalism um, that was able to take advantage of that moment. On the question of, of anti-fascist violence... In the book, you talk about the punching of Richard Spencer, which you know obviously became a meme. This happened in uh, 2017 during the inauguration of, of Donald Trump. Could you talk a bit about what your personal response was to to that instance of, of, of Antifa and the way in which the media responded to it? Sure. Um, so, yes, the, the punch happened on the afternoon of the inauguration. And I had been in Washington, D.C. that day, um, in in the counter protests, uh, some of which were were really quite rowdy, including a large black block, um, which ended up being kettled by the DC police, and um, you know about three hundred people were mass arrested. Um, so it had been it been a very kind of difficult, hectic, and strange day. And then kind of that evening, this this YouTube video emerges of potato faced Richard Spencer pointing to his Pepe the Flag lapel pin, explaining why he wasn't a neo-Nazi to, I think it was an Australian news crew, and then sort of jumping into frame, there's this little wiry black-clad figure, punches in him in the jaw and runs off. And then sort of very, very quickly, it was turned into a meme with all these different kind of musical backing tracks. Um, and so it was that, for me at least, it was this sort of like, like very small moment of rebellious joy at an otherwise very kind of grey cloud of a day. So, and I think a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people who were present that day and a lot of people who were, um, a lot of people on the left who were, had been worried about and angry about the unimpeded popularity and rise of people like Richard Spencer for a long time, people who were, you know, holding rallies saying, hail Trump, and who would later go on and march um, clan-like chanting blood and soil in Charlottesville. Um, you know, this was a kind of unambiguously joyous moment. And I wrote actually something along those lines, sort of presuming that punching a neo-Nazi wouldn't provoke that kind of old canard of violence versus non-violence um, that we see all too often. You know, you, these these protesters broke a window violence, um, and the normalization and acceptance of state violence and, you know, the, the kind of debates I've been writing about my whole uh, professional life. But I sort of did, did presume, and obviously wrongly, that there would be this sort of consensus, at least, like a, a, a punch, a not particularly damaging punch to a neo-Nazi. 
Well, yeah, m- many people pointed out that it wasn't a particularly good punch. <laughs> it was, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it was it was a kind of sly move, but, the, you know, he stumbles away and walks off unharmed. But then... Um, you know the, the 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 centrist and liberal backlash was was really swift and it was then we saw this really really vociferous emergence of you know maybe the real fascists are the anti-fascists and if you go low they go low we should listen to a Michelle Obama and they go low we go high and what about discourse and civility 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 which you know I, I probably should have predicted you know, only only a few years before, um, and almost kind of continuously in in less public stories, you have the police executing black children at point blank range, and then the media and the public locate violence in a riotous reaction in which windows are smashed. And so, I probably should have seen the response to R- the Richard Spencer punch as continuous with that. Um, rather than taking liberals at their kind of panicked word at the time that, you know, we're dealing with fascism, perhaps a kind of more aggressive response makes sense. Um, and then since then, we've seen this this discourse just spiral. Um, you know, we've got 73% of extremist murders in the last year in America have been carried out by white nationalists. And you have a huge media focus on the, the deep dangers of Antifa because one right-wing provocateur journalist got punched and some milkshakes to his face. You know, the week after Charlottesville, where an anti-fascist protester was, was killed when a neo-Nazi rammed his car into a, a crowd, there were as many... I mean, of course, famously, Trump said that there were very fine people amongst the neo-Nazi ralliers, but equally relevantly, in the six major broadsheets in that following week, there were just as many comment pieces and articles about the rise of the so-called alt-left, not a thing, the far left, as there were about the far right. Um, And that was sort of a shock to me, because you would think once you heard, especially given the kind of uh, liberal desire to be a counterpoint to Trump, I sort of thought when you heard Trump utter very fine people about the neo-Nazis, you wouldn't then have the liberal commentariat echo his sort of vile two-sidesism. But but they have almost without exception, which just finds itself in this sort of long lineage of mislocating violence and seeing the kind of bringing of violence as occurring in, in counter-violent acts, acts that are kind of perhaps confrontational, perhaps violent, but acting in counter, in opposition to a kind of broader, underlying, much more potentially genocidal violence, be that of white supremacist organising, be that of murderous, racist, police brutality. So, so yeah, I guess plus ça change in that sense. I mean, clearly... um... Liberals aren't opposed to the idea of, of anti-fascist violence at the level of international conflict, right? You, you would you'd struggle for, to find many liberals who didn't think the the, the Allied cause, say, was it was a justified one during during the Second World War. Do you think? I mean, do you think um, some of this queasiness about anti-fascist tactics is to do with a commitment to 
the state and its monopoly of violence. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, without doubt, both both that um, and that, you know, it, state monopolies of violence are considered the sort of only acceptable forms, which also performs a, a kind of an amazing failure in terms of understanding the actual acts of non-state anti-fascist actors during 20th century fascist resistance. Um, and that, that has in many ways uh, been whitewashed in our 20th century histories, mainstream 20th century histories, a point that's um, pretty well pointed out by uh, Enzo Traverso in his book, The New Faces of Fascism. There's a um, yeah, really nice uh, chapter there that looks at the kind of anti-anti-fascist writing of the history of fascism uh, that almost wants to pretend that the, the only way that um, 20th century state fascisms were defeated was either through the Allied campaigns and that the only other heroes could either be like stretcher carriers or doctors, as if there was no sort of active, specifically communist and anti-fascist resistance, um, even when it wasn't just uh, Soviet state campaigns. So, um, you know, I think these, these histories being lost mean it's all too easy in the now to have this kind of mythic idea that the only justified response to the only existence of fascism can happen in a kind of fully formed constituted state authoritarian regime and therefore the only powers to fight against it that would be legitimate would also be non-fascist state regimes which of course is a really problematic history if we are at all invested in stopping fascism as it rises in our midst or re-emerges or burgeons in our midst and uh you know and and that also it echoes a lot of it's it's a kind of historical nimbyism sort of we're fine with certain violences as long as it's not in our area not in our backyard but also not in our time and i think a really notable example of this is um which is a fact that i only found out about a year ago um the famed hairdresser vidal sassoon yeah i was very surprised to read that in the book. yeah um, no this is so vidal sassoon uh who who was obviously you know you might know him from shampoo bottles but was a very famous hairdresser died a couple of years ago and he had been part of the 43 group in London just after um, sort of 45, 45, 46. And he, the 43 group was an anti-fascist fighting gang uh, made up of Jewish, English Jewish ex-servicemen who returned from the war, um, you know, grand claims that fascism had been defeated. And at that very moment, Oswald Mosley, and his his fascist black shirts were organizing again and holding bigger and bigger rallies. So the 43 group deployed what would now be considered terroristic anti-fascist tactics. Their um their slogan was maim not kill. And they really drove drove away these fascist collectives, these fascist organizers, through essentially beating the crap out of them, um, really kind of consistently, um, every time they would dare to show up. So that kind of standard idea of anti-fascist tactics, making material, very unpleasant consequences for fascist organizing. And then when Vidal Sassoon died, and this wasn't kind of unknown in his history, all his sort of New York Times uh, obituaries said that he 
kind of celebrated this moment of his life as him living the anti-fascism and acting in service of the anti-fascism he so believed in. And of course, you know, the turn the page from that obituary and you've got another, you know, op-ed about the, the violent, brutal, real fascists of Antifa. So I think, we, you know, we see there that, that kind of classic nimbyism when it comes to political violence, um, which I think has only been able to proliferate because history is so, the way we tell history is, is so defanged and so purposefully whitewashed to decry or ignore or make sort of exceptional such that they couldn't apply today acts of um, confrontational or violent resistance. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.